Welcome and thanks very much for coming to the seminar tonight. Uh, my name's Tom Scott Smith and I'm Associate Professor of Refugee Studies and Forced Migration uh, here in the Department of International Development. And it's my pleasure to chair this session this evening, which has been arranged at short notice to close our seminar series on uh, Destination Europe. And we organized this additional event in response to the announcement last week of a new agreement between Turkey and the EU, um, an announcement that declared the need to uh, break the link between getting in a boat and getting settlements in Europe. We don't know exactly what this deal is going to look like, but according to the announcement, it's likely to be based around the following principles. To return all new irregular migrants crossing from Turkey to the Greek islands, to resettle for every Syrian readmitted by Turkey another Syrian to EU member states, to speed up the disbursement of the 3 billion euros pledged to Turkey's response, to accelerate uh, visa liberalization for Turkish citizens, to cooperate in humanitarian assistance within Syria, and to prepare for the opening of new accession negotiations. Uh, we have on the panel today seven experts to examine both the legality of this agreement and some of its political ramifications. Um, I'm going to introduce them all uh, to you now, and then they will go one by one as we proceed through the session. To begin with, uh, immediately on my right is Guy Goodwin-Gill, uh, Emeritus Professor of International Refugee Law and Emeritus Fellow at All Souls College, Oxford. He's the author of the indispensable book, The Refugee in International Law, and today he'll be giving some of the legal background and discussing situations of mass influx and how they should be handled. Next on the panel, we have Catherine Costello, who's Associate Professor of International Human Rights and Refugee Law here at the Refugee Studies Centre. She's recently published a new book entitled The Human Rights of Migrants and Refugees in European Law. And in her comments today, she'll be focusing on the European Convention of Human Rights and the prohibition on collective expulsion. Uh, in a moment, we'll be joined uh, by Alexander Betts, who's Professor of Forced Migration and International Affairs, Director of the Refugee Studies Centre, and a Fellow of Green Templeton College. Uh, he's the author of Protection by Persuasion and Survival Migration, and he'll be looking at the global dimensions of this deal and the impact of containment strategies on refugee protection in the region. Following Alex, we've got Jeff Crisp, who's a Research Associate at the Refugee Studies Centre and former Head of Policy Development and Evaluation at UNHCR. He's going to be giving us some historical context into our discussions, looking at some of the precedents of the deal in relation to the long-standing efforts of states to curtail the spontaneous arrival of asylum seekers in their territory. Our fifth speaker will be Frank Duval, Associate Professor and Senior Researcher at the Centre on Migration, Policy and Society here at the University of Oxford. He'll be looking in more detail at the Turkish context, commenting on the socio-economic conditions of refugees in Turkey and the attempts of Turkey to prevent unauthorised exit. Each uh, member of the panel will have 10 minutes uh, to speak, and then we're going to move on to our two respondents to close things off. First, we have Calypso Nicolaidis, who's Professor of International Relations, Director of the Centre for International Studies, and Fellow of St Anthony's College in Oxford. And then we have Goke Ozerin, who's Assistant Professor of International Relations and Deputy <coughs> Director of the European Union Centre at Yasha University in Turkey. The respondents will have five minutes, and if I do my job well, we should hopefully finish in about an hour and we'll have about half an hour left for questions. So without further ado, I want to pass over to Guy to start us off. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, what we're seeing in the Mediterranean today, uh, the central route, the eastern route, and increasingly, of course, beyond that along the Balkan route, 
country by country, road by road, rail by rail, border by border, is what seems to me to be the politics and practice of chaos, uh, by which I mean the ready sacrifice of agreed principles of settled practice and the lessons of experience to the dogmatism of a control philosophy rooted on the one hand in illusion and on the other in what appears to be fundamentalist opposition to working together, cooperating in the solution of humanitarian challenges and problems which recognize no borders. So is the international regime of refugee protection under threat? Is this the end of asylum? It might be the case that the lunatics have taken over the asylum. That's a Radiohead song entitled The Daily Mail. It's also a Fun Boy 3 song from 1981, but I can see everyone here is too young to remember that. <laughs> But in fact, the situation is likely to be much worse because it seems to me that the ministers of the interior have taken over the asylum. I'm not going to deal today much with the agreement. Uh, I'm not going to deal either with the foreseeability of the problems with which we're faced or the institutional dysfunction which affects the international system as well as the European system. But I think it's worth underlining that many of the complications which Europe faces today were actually anticipated 15 years ago in the European Union's 2001 Temporary Protection Directive, which drew, not surprisingly, on Europe's experiences with the breakup of former Yugoslavia and events in Kosovo. And it specifically recognized that a future mass influx might well threaten the capacity of national asylum systems. Now, many have wondered why this directive has not been activated. Perhaps it's the language of solidarity and the language of balance of efforts which appears alien to the Visegrad group and indeed to a number of those ministers of the interior I mentioned a moment ago. Or perhaps it's the fact that the European Council, in taking a decision on the existence of a mass influx, would bind all member states in relation to the persons concerned. And that seems to go against the grain in many quarters. Short-term self-interest, blatant disregard of the EU's organizing principles are clearly driving policy and practice in many member states, as is the woeful lack of basic decency and common humanity. Now, although it may never be activated, this temporary protection directive, it seems to me, lays down a number of useful markers for what ought to be the EU's framework response, whether we're thinking of the immediate challenges of reception and protection or the next, the next proximate step, which will be to take fully into account the circumstances of each individual and thereafter to take the appropriate decision in his or her case that is consistent with EU and international law. The directive understandably emphasizes that any response to a mass influx must be made up of measures that themselves are linked and interdependent for reasons of effectiveness, coherence, and solidarity. It also approaches the characterization of relevant displacement from an essentially objective perspective, which likewise I think is useful, for it concerns in the language of the directive, those who have to leave their country or region of origin and who cannot return. And it contemplates, in particular, those who fled areas of armed conflict or endemic violence. But as I want to show, that, for me, is not the immediate issue. Nonetheless, I do want to stress that in the context of this particular directive, it's not a court or tribunal or official which will decide on temporary protection, but the Council, the European Council, by a qualified majority. What we will have is effectively a truly European, what we would have is a truly European decision that has the effect, and I quote from the directive, of introducing temporary protection for the displaced persons to whom it refers in all the member states. 
Now, not everything is straightforward because in reaching its decision, the uh, Council is expected to receive from member states an indication of their reception capacity and expectation of sincere cooperation, which has, as we've seen, proved sorely misplaced in the present crisis. But while recent events demonstrate the need for an effective immediate response capacity both within and between states, the Temporary Protection Directive does have a number of weakness, weaknesses. It rightly focuses on the drivers of mass movement, armed conflict, generalized violence, human rights violations. But what is also needed first and foremost is recognition that those on the move, those actually on the move, will commonly be, as we have seen, in desperate need of shelter and assistance just as transit and receiving states will want and need to identify and register those arriving. And what the directive does not do is speak to the operational dimensions of receiving large numbers of refugees and asylum seekers. It also takes a rather relaxed attitude to what comes next. So what we need and what we deserve is an institutional, an effective institutional and legal basis which will enable that concerted EU response to include the provision of reception facilities and, yes, a measure of control and organization, both for better management and to bring assurance to those who are on the move. And experience shows also all too clearly how these facilities will, be needed, will likely be needed at borders, both within member states and ideally on a previously negotiated standby basis within the territory of non-member states who find themselves en route. So this, it seems to me, will require at the EU level a decision with legal effect. Well-structured, though, coordinated and organized reception premised on recognition of the conditions producing flight or movement is clearly essential to a humanitarian and effective response. It will meet those immediate need and care uh, requirements. It will open the way to considered and ultimately, we hope, defensible assessments of overall protection needs and will help to avert what we are seeing today, it seems to me, which is an unseemly rush to engage in summary denial of entry, summary removals inconsistent with international law and with EU standards, and which pass on, and which pass on an insupportable, an insupportable burden to frontline EU or non-EU states. And going one step further, such an approach, it seems to me, could provide the groundwork for a group approach to protection and status, and so help to reduce the impact which large numbers have on refugee procedures as we understand today, always being tied to individual case-by-case -case determination. And I would anticipate that such an approach could likewise be structured so as to integrate into wider EU schemes of relocation and equitable and fair sharing something from which I would suggest non-participating states, and you can imagine who I have in mind, could be excluded, although I think if they wish to continue as member states of the EU, they should certainly be required to contribute to financial costs. So what lessons are there to be learned from this rather sleeping directive? Uh, the message, the overall message, I think, if not all of its content, remains relevant, precisely because it recognizes the circumstances which justify flight and non-return of large numbers. And it recognizes the likely, and we've seen this happen, the likely impact on EU member states. It likewise, to me, signals the necessity of protection pending individual access to process or other appropriate solutions. And as an international lawyer, I would further argue that the necessity of protection, immediate protection, 
is itself driven by obligations. Those obligations are rooted in EU law, in European Convention law, in general international law. The triggers for responsibility, and I'm again talking the legal language, the triggers for responsibility and therefore liability in the case of non-compliance are quite straightforward. Knowledge on the part of states of the existence of groups at risk, awareness of the applicable law, and capacity for action. The even if individual states are stretched, and they are, the capacity of the EU is not, which means that concerted direct support should be provided for those states on the front line, whether in personnel, funding, or other resources. In practice, checks, and we're seeing this increasingly, checks and related controls, whether internal or external, may only, according to the law, be imposed where they are necessary and proportionate, and I would argue accompanied simultaneously by measures which ensure that those affected are not left to subsist in conditions incompatible with human dignity or inconsistent with the European Convention or the Charter. They also, it seems to me, where necessary and appropriate, will need to be implemented in active cooperation with member and non-member states, which may well mean the provision of temporary accommodation at borders or even straddling borders. And it also demands cooperation in identification, assessment of immediate needs, and a pathway to regular process according to law. And I see this immediate protection necessity as going beyond what we have in the way of reception directives and the like, but as being integrally linked, integrally linked to the common, or at least to the ideals of the common European asylum policy. But given the negative and non-cooperative response of certain member states, alternative ways of initiating, of implementing an EU policy consistent with principle need urgent consideration. And I would argue that through what's known as the mechanism of enhanced cooperation, if we can find the members, a regional subset of, say, nine states could collaborate, could come together on a mutually agreed scheme, building on immediate protection to provide reception, determination, protection, and even resettlement. In the meantime, though, immediate protection is no less an essential legal step, an obligatory contingent stage towards ensuring human dignity, realizing the protection of the Charter, avoiding arbitrary treatment, including the risk of summary expulsion, refoulement, or denial of judicial protection. And not to provide protection in these circumstances, and in the sense I've described, would be nothing less than an abuse of rights, an abus de droit. And presently, I see there is a real danger that control powers will be exerted and exercised so as to exceed any permissible scope and in so doing, states are likely to undermine the rule of law, which itself is the foundation of Europe, whether we're thinking of state by state, nation by nation, or more generally at large. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll move straight to Catherine. Uh, thank you very much, Tom. Um, and thank you, Guy, for uh, just so eloquently outlining an alternative, um, which would be a humane and legal and protection-oriented one. Um, as Tom said at the outset, this thing we're calling a deal is really uh, very short on detail and really isn't an agreement. We have um, a number of political statements that very much need to be fleshed out um, and very much mindful of that. Um, I just wanted to think about them from a legal point of view, particularly considering that the EU has very clear legal commitments to refugees not only in international law, but in its own internal um, EU legislation. And interestingly, one of the ambiguities in this statement of the um, EU heads of state is about this question of return. 
um, because in its opening paragraph, it, also, it talks about returning migrants not in need of international protection. Um, and as a lawyer reading that, that suggests that's individuals whose protection claims have been examined. And then decisions about return are taken. Whereas at other points in the statement, it's deeply ambiguous about whether returns would actually be of people with protection needs. Um, and then we get into big questions about the safety of um, Turkey in a legal sense. Um, so it's that that I want to focus on. But in some ways, I'm apologetic for that focus, because surely in the middle of a large regional refugee crisis, where we have countries in the region, notably Turkey, hosting millions of refugees, um, the notion that the EU should be returning people there um, needs to be questioned from a political point of view, and I guess that's going to be discussed by others on the panel. But just focusing simply on that question of legality of returns, um, within EU law is a concept of the safe third country, uh, which embodies the notion that um, states assert a right to send refugees under very limited conditions back to other countries if protection was available there. Um, the legality of the concept of a whole has been challenged by some scholars, but the Refugee Convention itself seems to at least allow some leeway for those types of practices. Um, but that leeway is always very tightly constrained. And within EU law itself, there are very clear rules that have been adopted not once by the EU legislature, but twice when it adopted legislation governing asylum procedures. And they speak to the fact that returns can only be countenanced if protection is available in accordance with the 1951 Refugee Convention. And the difficulty with returns to Turkey under that test is that while Turkey has ratified the convention, it maintains a geographical limitation, meaning that the protection status, which even Syrians get, which is a particular status, um, is hardly in accordance with the 1951 convention. Now, there has been some legal debate about this, and some legal scholars have stretched that notion of in accordance with to suggest that it would mean protection equivalent to protection under the 1951 convention. I'm not sure that gets us out of the difficulty. I mean, I think in accordance with suggests that the state in question is obliged to treat somebody in that way, and that is where the security of their status comes from, that it's rooted in international obligation. Um, it's interesting to me that there has been a somewhat of a lively debate amongst legal scholars about this point. I mean, I think the preponderant and correct view is that Turkey is not a safe third country under the terms of the current EU legislation. But some legal scholars have rode in on the other side of that discussion um, in support of the EU-Turkey deal. Now, the letter of the EU legislation is one thing. But I think secondly and crucially, the rationale for having a very tightly constrained safe third country rule, which always insists that the individual circumstances must be examined, and so always requires a clear um, and effective procedure to examine that, um, is basically rooted in non-refoulement, which is the sacrosanct principle um, in international refugee law. Uh, so non-return to face persecution or to face torture or inhuman and degrading treatment, which is rooted not only in EU law, but obviously also in the Refugee Convention and international human rights law. And we insist on this around the world. We insist on non-refoulement in our engagement throughout the international community. So to imperil non-refoulement is really to threaten, I think, the foundations of the um, international protection system. Um, 
the prohibition on refoulement also includes chain refoulement, so returning somebody, for example, to Turkey if they were then at risk to return to their home country. And in particular, if we're talking about people who aren't Syrian, there are very informal and weak protections, I think, in Turkey. Um, and there are documented cases of onward return from Turkey to countries where people's lives were at risk. Um, so that's on the question of non-refoulement. Uh, the third legal point that's being discussed a lot is the prohibition on collective expulsion. So under the European Convention on Human Rights, there is a very clear prohibition on collective expulsion. And as currently defined, a collective expulsion is any group expulsion where the individual circumstances are not taken into account. Um, and Italy was recently condemned for a collective expulsion of Tunisians from Lampedusa, where it claimed to have established the nationality of the individual's concerns, but didn't interview them about their individual circumstances and protection needs. Um, interestingly, again, some commentators have attempted to undermine that legal position and suggested that the prohibition on collective expul expulsion could be interpreted in a weaker manner. So I'm also very interested in the role of lawyers as an epistemic community at moments like this, um, because certainly some <coughs> colleagues seem to be very clearly rowing into a line uh, which, to my mind, doesn't amount to speaking truth to power, which might be uh, a hallmark of a good international lawyer. Um, so this prohibition on collective expulsion seems to suggest you have to have individual procedures. Um, so on the one hand, the political statement wants us to imagine swift returns, uh, something that can be somehow cleanly and efficiently effectuated, thereby creating a very strong deterrent to irregular migration. Um, and that seems to me to be deeply dubious. Um, refugees who make irregular journeys do the whole journey under extreme risks that they factor into their calculation. And the risk of deportation seems to be just one additional risk that would be factored into that risk calculation, but hardly one that could be guaranteed uh, to dampen down um, demand for protection in Europe. Uh, finally, and to conclude, uh, the points that I've focused on are really concerned about the bare minimum of illegality. You know, the bare minimum of what it is permissible to do so as to avoid exposing people to torture, inhuman and degrading treatment, refoulement, collective expulsion. But of course, human rights commitments are much broader than that and much deeper than that, as Professor Goodwin Gill's comments have demonstrated. And I really wanted us to pause to think about the human rights violations that take place in these processes. So in the example that I gave of Tunisians collectively expelled from Italy, it wasn't just a procedural problem. They were also confined on ships in a manner that was a violation of their right to liberty. Um, and often in these instances, we find <coughs> detention conditions that are inhuman and degrading. Um, and the question that always looms on my mind when I look at the scenes from the Greek islands or from Idomini is the question, well, if you are going to change the practices, who asks the question, where are people going to sleep? Because basic questions of shelter are routinely being ignored throughout this crisis, which to me <coughs> seems to be quite clearly um, a breach of international human rights law, which entails a positive obligation on states to avoid conditions that are inhuman and degrading. Um, and the fact that instead of focusing on lives that should be lived in dignity, 
um, we're, we've somehow reduced our conception of international human rights to this bare minimum um, seems to me to be also a deeply problematic feature of the way political discourse around rights and around basic questions of humanity are being framed in the crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. Alexander Betts. I'm going to focus on the politics of the proposed deal. Um, there's a lot one could say about the political viability of the deal itself. Cyprus's objection to Turkish EU accession, the absence of an EU commitment to the resettlement places to support one in, one out, the sustainability of Erdogan's own commitment to asylum in light of the Ankara bombing. But I want to focus on a different political question, the wider implications for the global refugee regime. What does this mean beyond Europe? for the collective structures of international cooperation. At first glance, the deal could generously be interpreted as having echoes of the 1989 Indo-Chinese Comprehensive Plan of Action, in that it introduces a triage mechanism for responding to mixed migration flows and seeks to ensure so-called genuine refugees receive access to resettlement and others do not. But this parallel is far too generous. This is really not CPA-like because, first, it fails to ensure effective protection for those who are refugees. It does not have an open-ended commitment to resettlement for all Syrian refugees, let alone clear guarantees of protection for other refugees from Iraq, Afghanistan, or Eritrea, for example, who may lack clear legal status in Turkey. And because it also has no clearly identified mechanism for how to humanely treat Donald Tusk's illegal migrants, how will they be deported, detained, where, and how? The deal, as so far outlined, represents a willingness by European states to violate international refugee law with a significant threat to the rules and principles developed in the aftermath of the Second World War. So what I want to look at is what might be called the political consequentialism of undermining law and suggest that the way the deal undermines the refugee regime may ultimately be bad for refugees and governments, including those in the European Union. The threat to the refugee regime can be thought about as potentially changing norms in four fundamental areas. First, spontaneous arrival asylum. Perhaps the greatest challenge from the deal is its abandonment of the notion of spontaneous arrival asylum, with European leaders replicating much of the language previously used by Australia's politicians to distinguish between worthy resettled refugees and unworthy boat refugees. Jean-Claude Juncker's claim that, quote, all Syrians arriving in Greece would be sent back to Turkey and put to the back of the resettlement queue perhaps best exemplifies this language. The closure of the Balkan route and the carrots and sticks lavished on Macedonia to close its borders amount to reformal. But more than that, they amount to a curtailment of spontaneous arrival asylum. Standing back, we need to recognize what's at stake. Spontaneous arrival asylum is not only an important route to protection and a way to avoid using coercive violence against refugees, it also has a political function. It sends a symbolic message. If Europe is not prepared to open its borders to refugees, why should Jordan, Kenya, or Thailand? And if those countries ultimately close their borders, then the edifice of the refugee regime risks coming crashing down and risks even greater chaos at Europe's borders. Second, resettlement. In a year in which increasing resettlement pledges is a major aim of international conferences, 
including UNHCR's 30th of March conference on pathways, basically a resettlement pledging conference, and Obama's September refugee meeting alongside the UN General Assembly, the Turkey deal risks damage to the integrity and purpose of resettlement. The one-in-one-out deal threatens to make resettlement appear self-serving and disingenuous. Indeed, let's say that EU states are now able to turn up to the 30th of March conference or the Obama summit and commit to resettlement from Turkey. If these pledges are linked to the Turkey deal, a number of consequences may follow. One, the net contribution to protection may be zero if one Syrian resettlement place is linked to one Syrian refugee sent back from Greece to Turkey. Two, the line between relocation and resettlement risks becoming so blurred as to fail to distinguish between states moving people around, relocation, and transferring people from first countries of asylum for protection reasons or as a durable solution. Three, there's a risk that these resettlement places become a way of proclaiming the post hoc legitimation of the Turkey deal by the international community. Put simply, if we accept EU resettlement places under the one-in-one-out deal as internationally recognized resettlement places, the very integrity of resettlement may be tarnished. Third, outsourcing. The transfer of responsibility for refugee protection is not a new idea. Australia has long tried to outsource asylum processing and protection to Nauru and other Southeast Asian countries. The EU has attempted numerous pilots to outsource protection including working with other dictatorships, such as Gaddafi's Libya. Such attempts have generally compromised human rights and proved practically unworkable and often been abandoned. In some ways, protection in the region of origin, as it's euphemistically become known, is a contemporary reality. There is no equitable distribution of refugees around the world. Just 10 countries host nearly 60% of the world's refugees. And common but differentiated responsibility sharing is a reality. However, there is a world of difference between encouraging containment through opportunity and enforcing containment through coercion. Creating jobs and education for Syrian refugees in Turkey is one thing. Using violent coercion to stop Syrian refugees entering Europe is quite another. Crossing that threshold and seeing refugees, and we are talking about refugees here, as people against whom state violence is justifiable for purposes of migration management represents a dangerous precedent. Put simply again, the deal risks legitimating a highly problematic trend towards outsourcing protection. Fourth, it risks transforming the historical moral leadership of UNHCR. As a former employee of UNHCR, I care deeply about the organization. But in many ways, its reaction to the Turkey deal has been far too soft at least publicly, and is symptomatic of UNHCR appearing to check out of the EU crisis ever since last April. Yes, UNHCR publicly highlighted it has some concerns about the deal, that it was not party to the European Council meeting in Brussels. It's clearly in a precarious position with European countries <clears throat> being among its major donors, but UNHCR was endowed with a supervisory responsibility in relation to the convention. It is, to put it very colloquially, the guardian of the refugee regime. But its response to European states has become reactive. Where is UNHCR's pro proactive alternative vision? If UNHCR cannot condemn such a manifestly bad proposal of a deal, what has happened to its capacity to provide autonomous moral leadership? 
Historically, as the work of Gil Losha has shown, UNHCR has arguably been at its strongest when it's shown this kind of proactive leadership, even when it's risked sometimes clashing with state interests. So in conclusion, the EU-Turkey deal risks to cross a line. It is one that has certainly been transgressed in the past, but perhaps never so flagrantly and knowingly by such a politically significant group of governments. If Europe is prepared to inflict such significant damage to the global refugee regime, it should first stand back and understand what it is giving up and the global and long-term ramifications of those choices. How European leaders consider and hopefully reconsider some of the elements of the deal will have a bearing on the very future of the refugee re regime, not just here, but globally. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. Jeff Chris. Yeah, thank you. In the eight days since it was announced, a lot has been written about the EU-Turkey refugee deal, with some commentators suggesting that the proposed arrangement represents a new turn in European asylum policy. In fact, I'd like to suggest the deal is simply the latest episode in a long-standing effort on the part of the EU and other industrialised states to curtail and manage the arrival of asylum seekers. From the early 1980s onwards, EU members and industrialised states in, elsewhere in the world introduced a never-ending series of measures that were specifically designed to limit the number of asylum seekers arriving spontaneously on their territory. They included carrier sanctions, new visa requirements and pre-boarding documentation checks, the increased fortification of borders, interception at sea, the apprehension and prosecution of human smugglers, the introduction of concepts such as safe country of origin, safe third country and internal flight alternative, fast-track asylum procedures for so-called manifestly unfounded cases, the detention of asylum seekers, and the imposition of restrictions on their right to work, social welfare, and legal aid. In addition to the introduction of such restrictive measures, the industrialized states have been looking very hard for alternative ways of curtailing the arrival of asylum seekers. I'd like to mention three of them, all of which are particularly pertinent to the current deal being negotiated between the EU and Turkey. The first is the establishment of safe zones in countries of origin, zones which limit the need and ability of people to seek asylum in other states. The second is that of so-called migration management agreements, usually involving cooperation between the industrialised states and less prosperous countries in the same region. And the third is that of legitimising state strategies by securing the involvement of UNHCR, IOM and other international organisations. So let me say a few words about each of these three strategies and the issues that they raise in relation to the EU-Turkey deal. While international attention has focused on the one-for-one -one return and resettlement agreement provisionally agreed upon by the EU and Turkey, there is another and relatively neglected component of that accord, and that is to be found in the EU's commitment, and here I'm quoting from the official communique, I quote, to work with Turkey in any joint endeavour to improve humanitarian conditions inside Syria which would allow for the local population and refugees to live in areas which will be more safe. Let me make three observations with respect to this element of the deal. First, it's extremely vague, with no details provided as to how humanitarian conditions will be improved inside Syria, given the ongoing conflict there, or how the situation inside northern Syria will be made safer for displaced people and local populations. Secondly, the communique says nothing about the right of Syrians to leave their country of origin and to take refuge in Turkey, an important omission 
in view of the fact that around 75,000 displaced Syrians have now congregated in the border area and are being prevented from crossing into Turkey. Third, the whole notion of safe zones in countries of origin has a generally dismal history. While the Geneva Conventions allow for the creation of hospital zones, neutralised zones and demilitarised zones in situations of armed conflict, such arrangements require consent between the belligerents and depend on complete demilitarisation. Those safe zones that have been established in recent years have clearly not met those conditions. In Bosnia in 1995, UN troops stood by as Serbian forces overran the safe areas of Srebrenica and Zepa and committed terrible atrocities there. In Rwanda in 1994, the safe area established by France provided a refuge for the very people who had organised the genocide. The one relatively successful area established in northern Iraq in 1991 to halt a Kurdish refugee influx into southern Turkey prevented the Kurds from exercising their right to seek asylum, required a massive military presence, a no-fly zone and the deployment of 20,000 NATO troops, and was underpinned by an agreement between the UN and the Iraqi government. While Turkey's desire to establish some kind of safe zone in northern Syria is understandable, it is highly questionable as to whether this experiment should or even could be repeated. Moving on to the strategy of migration management, I'm referring here to arrangements which seek to limit the spontaneous of arrivals of asylum seekers on the territory of prosperous states by means of agreements with less developed states in the same region, and Alex has already referred to some of these. Australia's so-called Pacific Solution provides one example. The migration agreement signed between Libya and Italy in 2011 provides another. And a third example is to be found in the proposals that have been made by several EU politicians for asylum seekers to have their claims to refugee assessed, sorry, their claims to refugee status assessed in North Africa, with strict controls placed on their ability to cross the Mediterranean. The impending EU-Turkey agreement provides, I would suggest, the most recent example of this phenomenon. And while time does not allow me to go into any detail, I think all four of these examples raise very serious legal, ethical and operational issues, none of which have been adequately addressed in the information provided so far on the proposed EU-Turkey deal. Finally, and come back to another point that Alex raised a few minutes ago, a few words about the participation of international organisations such as UNHCR and IOM in state-led efforts to curtail the spontaneous arrival of asylum seekers. I don't think we should be surprised about the eagerness of EU member states to involve such organisations, given on one hand the competence and capacity that they can bring to refugee situations, but on the other hand, and perhaps more significantly, the legitimacy that they can offer to contentious and possible, possibly illegal state practices. And this is exactly what has happened in the past. Despite its initial reservations, for example, UNHCR played a central role in supporting the establishment of the Northern Iraq safe zone in 1991, while IOM has been active in several aspects of Australia's specific solution. An important question now is whether UNHCR will agree to an involvement in the EU-Turkey deal, especially in its resettlement component, the size of which will be based on the number of involuntary returns from Greece and the Aegean Sea. As yet, I'd like to suggest the organisation's position remains somewhat unclear. As Alex has already pointed out, UNHCR has emphasised that it is not a party to the deal and has expressed concern about any arrangement that involves the blanket return of all individuals from one country to another. 
But I'd like to suggest that UNHCR will also find it very difficult to reject the agreement out of hand, not least because it needs to maintain a good relationship with Turkey, which is hosting a larger number of Syrian refugees than any other country in the region, but also because EU and NATO member states collectively provide around 80% of UNHCR's funding. According to a recent article in the Financial Times, UNHCR has said that it would play its part in resettling refugees from Turkey to the EU, despite the concerns that it has expressed about the agreement to return new arrivals from Greece. Justifying such an involvement, a UNHCR spokesperson said to the newspaper, resettlement, and I quote, resettlement should not be conditional on external factors and the protection needs of the individual remain the priority. One question we might want to discuss is how UNHCR will actually respond to this dilemma. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. All right. Uh, hello, everybody. I haven't got any notes or paper. I've just got a couple of slides and I talk you through. I'm addressing uh, three issues. Turkey's migration transition for the past couple of eight, ten years, Turkey has already been becoming a destination country for labour migrants and uh, for refugees. We talk about uh, a very short period within which Turkey received significant numbers of people. Uh, rise of GDP you have here, rise of the immigrant population uh, you have here. These dots, uh, data is insufficient, so it's impossible to draw a line here, but you see it has increased uh, significantly and this uh, number doesn't reflect the arrival of uh, asylum seekers, refugees in Turkey, another two and a half million people. Numbers are disputed because people leaving the country are not deregistered, so there might be fewer people in Turkey uh, uh, than uh, reflected in uh, these numbers. The issue that we've got here is that so far Turkey hasn't made up its mind whether or not it's prepared, it would acknowledge to have been becoming an immigration, a refugee destination country. That explains some of the policy responses we have seen uh, so far, notably uh, that large numbers of asylum seekers and refugees are kept in this limbo situation, temporary protection, that the geographic limitation hasn't been lifted as uh, has been discussed uh, when the recent law uh, has been uh, reformed. This is a process of globalization, of normalization. Turkey's economic growth, Turkey is catching up, it has become a destination country. The levels of immigrants are still well below the European average, it's like four, five, six percent, nobody knows. The EU average is, of course, much uh, higher. This uh, for the context. Then, uh, is Turkey doing enough in order to prevent irregular migration leaving the country, crossing over to Greece. Uh, we had uh, a seminar at the European Studies Centre uh, uh, two weeks ago, I think. Uh, we had an interesting controversy. A Greek uh, professor of law or politics, uh, Dimitri uh, Christopoulos, uh, reported on a visit he did to Turkey, to Izmir. He got fairly agitated when he reported about shops freely selling life vests and dinghies and outboards and all the rest of it. And then I uh, sort of uh, responded or commented by saying, well, first of all, Izmir 
is a maritime town, four and a half, five million people. It's one of the most important ports of the country. It's got a fishing industry, it's got a sailing community. There is nothing more normal in such a town than providing services uh, to the marinas and selling life vests and all the rest of it. And there is basically nothing you can do about that if this opportunity is used by people who want to leave the country clandestinely and also buying these life vests, there is nothing irregular. You can't stop that illegally. But then I was also arguing uh, that uh, Turkey is in fact facing a security dilemma. From the Western perspective, one of the main concerns is irregular or illegal, as it is called, uh, migration from Turkey into Greece. But look at the case of Turkey. One of the main security concerns, which requires enormous resources, is the security now the southern and the eastern borders. Military, police, gendarme, everybody is basically on the border with Syria and then uh, on the uh, eastern border with Iran. The second issue, even though it's partly self-inflicted by the government, is sort of uh, the resurgence of uh, a violent conflict in the Kurdish areas. Again, police, gendarme, resources, intelligence, everything is sort of pulled uh, into, into that area. And third, we have uh, seen a couple of atrocities, terrorist attacks, bombings in Istanbul and in Ankara. Again, the police the security apparatus is concerned with that. In this context of a complex security situation, uh, the Western border's emigration is not considered a threat to the integrity of the country, to the security of the Turkish people. It's inevitably at the bottom of all these concerns. And I had uh, uh, conducted an ESRC project unraveling uh, uh, the uh, refugee migration crisis in the Mediterranean. So I talked to officials, police officers, border guards, coast guards, and all the rest of it in Ankara, in Izmir, in Istanbul. And they were all saying, well, what can we do? We have other priorities. Our resources are uh, limited. Nevertheless, a very interesting statistics the Turkish Coast Guards last year have apprehended more than 90,000 people uh, in the Turkish waters and returned them back to Turkey. They have also apprehended almost 200, 190 uh, smugglers. Uh, and uh, the issue then had been what to do with these people. They reside in Turkey legally. They have a refugee status, they have a residence permit, they stay visa-free. They cannot be detained. They have to be released the other day so they can try again. Can they be sent to Anatolia, put behind bars? There is a huge question mark here. And my final argument I had with the Greek professor was, uh, if we are going to demand from Turkey to do even more than this, apprehending people, putting them back ashore, it inevitably uh, means, I suspect, violation, violation of human rights and of refugee rights on a large scale, like sending people back to Anatolia, put them in closed uh, detention centers, fine them or punish them in one way or another for uh, what they uh, had been uh, it, it doing. Finally, the conditions of uh, refugees, asylum seekers in Turkey. 
In my research, I found like 350,000 registered, probably another 150,000 unregistered Syrians only in Istanbul. What they reported is life in a basement, meaning that Turkish property owners would discriminate them and would not let them proper apartments or rooms, but let property that they can't let to Turks, which is basically three families, 12 uh, uh, people, including five, six, seven children, in the basement, no windows, no air, no natural light. Overcrowding has been mentioned. People living in extreme poverty has been uh, mentioned. Afghans in Istanbul, 18,000. They were living under bridges, whole family like here, and that was a miserable October, windy, rainy day, pretty cold, enormous uh, suffering. Syrians in Izmir, nobody knows officially, 75,000. Some NGOs say, oh, there might be up to 400,000. Again, what I found and what was reported was extreme poverty, exploitation, overcrowding. And this in a country which is only able to provide camp accommodation to 250,000 of almost 3 million people, all others are basically abandoned with little regular access to regular employment on the labour market, with little access to social services. These rights exist on papers, but are not implemented and not implementable because of lack of resources. So that undermines what we've heard so far, to what extent can Turkey be considered a safe country to refugees, asylum seekers. Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> uh, I'd like to thank all of the panelists for keeping to time. Um, we're well within the time allocated. Um, and I'd now like to turn to our two uh, respondents. Uh, first of all, uh, Clipso Nicolaitis. Thank you. Uh, indeed, uh, what, a, what a panel. Uh, what great, brilliant mind. Uh, to try to navigate us through such a terrible issue. And I, I guess I want to ask the panel, uh, you know, at the end of the day, is the deal worth rescuing? I think we hear from you a lot that maybe it isn't even worth rescuing. But if you entertain the fact that maybe that's really a second best, this deal, we cannot attain the first best that lawyers, political scientists, and and well-meaning observers of all sorts would prefer. So if it is a second best, how do we do it? How do we rescue it? And, and I guess I would, I would argue that the deal is defensible if you think about it very simply as two equations. First equation, resettlement is better, superior to relocation, uh, for all the reasons we know. And the second bit of the equation is that uh, Turkey, like other of our neighbors, are the thick borders of Europe, and we need to manage them for political reasons and, and all the rest of it. So we have a deal. It's a second best, but that's, it's a deal that somehow may, has a logic, and you've said it in various ways. But you've all also said, secondly, all of you, that the deal is flawed for legal, moral, political reasons. Uh, in fact, we could summarize how it's flawed you know, and I take my cue from Guy, that in terms of illusion, diversion, and perversion. And if I take these three categories, I want to ask under what conditions, I'm, to all of you, under what conditions can we 
deal, make it better on these three counts. So, you know, illusion. Just basically that, the, that, that it won't work, that it can't work, that those who wait are not in less need of legal protection and, 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 and those who, sorry, those who don't wait and those who wait won't wait forever. So Catherine and Guy in particular have talked about the legality of return and readmission in Turkey. Catherine's bare minimum of legality is very telling. Uh, and whether you know, Turkey is safe as a third country, all of these debates about non-refoulement. So on one hand, and of course, even if we can deal with the issue of Turkey, on the other hand, um, can we even deal legally with the fact of, of pushing back refugees, of, of dealing with refugees uh, one by one, um, not by one one, but uh, as a group. So the question for, for, for lawyers is the extent to which these are fundamentally legal problems, or if they have, in emergency situations, practical responses. Is it possible to think that if enough people were sent to Greece as caseworkers instead of police officers or soldiers, you know, this could be addressed. If enough monitoring was done in Turkey uh, to, and enough work around its, its status as um, safe third country, uh, th that would make it acceptable, can we deal with it? Where does law start and practicality start? Now, of course, in addition to legality and underlying it, you have the social anthropological problem, the refugees themselves, the point of view of the refugee, which Alex is so, and all of you, of course, start with. So at the end of the day, and you haven't talked about that, if we think about this story as a story about incentives for them, what, what will affect the way in which those incentives reach them? What kind of odds to be uh, on the top of the queue if you're going to be resettled will keep people from trying the desperate journeys? Um, how, how do we start thinking about these incentives? And indeed, this has a lot to do with uh, what you were, both Alex and Frank, were discussing in terms of the conditions in the source country. So this is kind of stories about, well, this is an illusion. It, can it even work legally and humanely? <laughs> but of course, there's a second category of criticism that your thoughts have come under, which is diversion. That the problem with the deal is it diverts us from more holistic questions, bigger questions, other questions that are more, much more important. And of course, this started with Guy's you know, point. It is the directive, stupid, uh, that you know, we, all of these issues are addressed potentially in EU law, uh, but it, they're simply, we, we just need to go back to EU law, if need be, by bypassing veto players, by going through enhanced cooperation, says Guy. And, and this deal is just a diversion from this approach. And indeed, uh, the mathematical logic of the situation hasn't changed, has it? Uh, we, whether you resettle or you relocate when, when they're in Greece, you still have the same numbers to re, re, replace and reallocate among European countries. Uh, we still have the need for protection. We still have 
the question of places. We still have questions that you haven't addressed, political questions, about how you finance all this when it's 0.2 to 0.3 of European GDP that's at stake. Not much, we agree, but in this time of uh, Eurozone crisis, countries care. How do we create a tax, new debt? All of these questions have been debated, and they're, again, more holistic. How do we persuade a country like Greece, this is the debates we had with Frank and the European Center, to change from a state of, uh, of being as a transit country to itself a resettlement country? Um, how do we really focus on source countries? And all of you, of course, Frank, Jeff, Alex, uh, discussed that. But when we say, well, you know, what's important is to encourage containment, uh, incentives, you know, Alex formula, encourage containment rather than enforce containment. Um, is it fair to pose this as, you know, an alternative? Isn't it the case that there will be more money and more goodwill in encouraging containment, in helping source countries, if at the same time there is enforcement? Um, it's just a question, it's a political question in terms of public opinion. And the third uh, and I'll finish on this. Uh, the third categories of opposition is about perversion. That maybe there's a perverse effect. This is the biggest criticism of the deal. Uh, that there are perverse effects to it. So the question for us is can we transform perverse effect into virtuous effects? Whether we're talking about Alex's issues of undermining the refugee regime as a whole. And there, Alex, what we need to ask, don't we, is whether when we have emergency measures like this, how do we keep them from becoming a steady state? In my view, you don't necessarily criticize emergency measures because they might turn into the steady state, but you care about how they wouldn't. In terms of public opinion, how do you deal with uh, the fact that it could be perverse because there is much more effective empathy for babies who die, unfortunately, than for people in camps? So how do you could transform this empathy into a more cognitive and sophisticated empathy? For Turkey, we haven't talked about the highly perverse effect of, of, of encouraging a government in its crackdown of opposition uh, through rewarding this deal. So um, how do we deal with that? What is a good and a bad linkage? Maybe reward is a good linkage, but membership is a bad linkage. And what about the Cyprus issue, indeed, that, that, that Alex raised en passant, but is becoming a big one. So in, in all of these three areas, whether it's illusion, diversion, or perversion, I would plea for asking the social science condition, you know, under what condition can we, uh, with our kind of resources, rescue the deal? Because that's basically all or more or less what's on offer as we speak. Wonderful, thank you. And before we give the panel to respond, um, I will return to our second respondent, Goke Ozerin. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for all the gracious uh, inputs from all our discussions and speakers. Uh, as the final word, I would like to first roughly summarize the whole picture in Turkey before uh, concluding with my <coughs> remarks. So, what is the situation in Turkey? We know the general information. Turkey hosts around 2.7 million Syrians with the official numbers, but 
more or less it's more than three million as we assume right now, right now with uh, under temporary protection. And when we talked to Syrians in Turkey, in fact, we discussed mostly the non-camp refugees since just less than 10% of all Syrians in Turkey are living in the camps. And in, as the latest development, in addition to the rice and facilities provided to Syrians, uh, by the employee protection with the latest arrangements, they have obtained the right to work with some certain conditions. This is the overall picture, briefly. So when we come to deal between EU and Turkey, it's possible to highlight some questions emer emerge around the deal after also listening to all our speakers today. So uh, as the final words, I would like to just to cluster these questions uh, under two uh, under two dimensions of the, all the discussions, also briefly uh, explained here today. Uh, okay, the, the rationale behind the uh, deal between EU and Turkey, uh, we, we 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 just justified this deal with uh, with the excuse, somewhat excuse of an immediate response. But there are various gaps that should be filled in order to discuss this deal properly because. Uh, somehow we are trying to describe the elephant just, just touching one part of it, which was presented to us by the leaders right now. So we don't know the overall pictures. But I would like to address two major aspects, let's say deficiencies and their possible effects. Uh, one, one dimension is related with the legal and ethical aspect, and the second is related with the operational and the management uh, issues related with this deal. So the first one, the ethical and legal questions that we can discuss. Uh, the first one is whether it's consistent with the defined values of the EU on human rights and more significantly with the international norms by considering in particular Genoa and Genoa Convention and the Dublin. The second one, whether the only reason of this sort of an external deal is that EU couldn't succeed to, uh, to uh, an internal deal or this is just uh, just 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 uh, things that came following the following the ongoing Syrian refugee crisis. And side effects of the deal, probably the most explicit one. Uh, what will be the perception of the public in both sides of the uh, both sides of the deal in terms of understanding this refugee crisis? For instance, in Turkey, uh, in the attitude of the public is still moderate, we can call it as moderate, in spite of a remarkable population change brought by the Syrians in the last five years. So after five years, in fact, in social affairs, uh, we need to discuss integration of migration in Turkey. However, uh, this deal shifts the public perception in Turkey from these integration questions more to the EU conditionality for visa liberalization. Therefore, the deal and the previous negotiation has a threat to simplify this issue, this refugee crisis, just uh, to the extent of visibilization in the perception of the Turkish public. And when we look at the EU's, EU aspect, EU uh, public, uh, into just a budgetary bargaining process, bargaining affair in the perception of the EU citizens. This is the, another threat. For, the, for my questions, uh, for the second time, the dimension, uh, of this deal, which is related with operational and management aspect. 
what uh, and uh, if we if we briefly also summarize what we have discussed here today the first question what will be the legal structure of the deal which is still not clear the second one is what will be the legal base and how legitimate to define Turkey within some certain conceptualization of EU within this deal such as safe country it's still under discussion and the third one is who will be the responsible for the process will it include a certain members group or will will just rely on the management of Germany within this crisis it's still not clear. The fourth one is what will be the limits of securitization in this crisis when we uh, consider the involvement of various actors and let's say non-traditional uh, non actors in migration policies such as the involvement of the NATO to the crisis. And the last question, how can we carry this discussion again to the humanitarian grant rather than justify it with smuggling and irregularity? This is the last question. And as a final question, I would like to also ad uh, address this question, how it will be possible to rescue the EU-Turkey relations and negotiation process from pragmatism that explicitly revealed by this refugee crisis to again to a proper process. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now, I want to give every member of the panel a brief chance to respond um, to those two sets of questions. Um, and then we'll have, after that, some time for questions from the floor uh, as well. But I think it's certainly worth returning to them. Um, so, Guy, would you mind kicking us off and hopefully responding to particularly Calypso's challenge about whether this deal is worth rescuing? Thank you. I can, I can do that relatively quickly, I think. I mean, I can't do it full justice. But I think if, on the, if I identify the issue as, as rescue the deal, uh, if I bear in mind that the, the best is often the enemy of the good, then nonetheless I'm still driven to conclude that if the deal, whatever it may be, is not clearly based on European and international law, then what's the point? Overall, that's going to result in much more damage, not just systemic damage, but it's going to result in harm to individuals, families, and children. It's going to lead to litigation. It's going to produce no solution overall, no alleviation of the situation. And those are the lessons of experience. They're not predictions just drawn out of the air. That's what has happened in previous situations. And unfortunately, I'm aware that there is a tendency in some governments, in some departments, as there was under the Blair Blanket regime, for example, when issues of law and practice come into the picture, to, as they put it, well, let's take our chance in the courts, and if we lose, we'll blame the judges. It's not something that actually gets you anywhere positive. But likewise, I think factoring into my overall assessment is, is, is the feeling, the apprehension based on some research that we are, we are seeing here, we are getting a taste of the past and a taste of the future. Um, I think it is a sad reflection on the overall dysfunctionality of the international system that the response of states to refugee movements has always been temporary. Back in 1921, when the League of Nations appointed its first High Commissioner for Refugees, it was for Russian refugees. It was thought that, that would be the only one that states needed to be bothered about, the only group, and that refugees anyway were a blip in the relations between states and they wouldn't long be with us. When they decided finally to put UNHCR on a permanent basis in 2003, nothing actually changed. No changes were made, for example, in the funding arrangements for UNHCR, which still have to be met out of voluntary contributions. We still effectively have a temporary response to what states perceive to be uh, a blip 
uh, in their relations. And beyond the refugee issue, there, is been, there has likewise been a disinclination on the part of states to anticipate, to see what's coming down the line. 1991, the ILO estimated that some 30 to 40 million jobs a year needed to be created in the developing world. Uh, was anything or much done? No. What happened? Did everyone sit and die quietly when there was no work to do? Of course they didn't. The latest population revision 2015 estimates, amongst other things, of course, a continuing increase, although a slowing one in the world population. But most, I think, very significantly, an increase in the 10 to 24 age cohort to 2 billion by the year 2050. And I ask the question again, are they just going to sit and die if there's nothing to do? Of course not. They're going to move. And it's time for the international community in the developing and the developed world to cooperate much more effectively, recognizing what's going to happen and taking steps to deal with these challenges in a humane and pos positive way. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you both uh, to the commentators for really uh, raising difficult questions. Um, I think. I mean, to try to answer Calypso's social science question, under what conditions, I think I would have to be a social scientist. Uh, but, but I think one aspect of it that we could at least raise would be just the question which might underpin at least one of the aims of the deal, which is to reduce the uh, number of irregular arrivals so that some uh, kind of semblance of control over arrivals can be asserted. Um, and I understand why that's a political aim. I understand particularly in the context where protection is overwhelmingly being provided by Germany and Sweden and other states are often in dereliction of their duties, that that's an important political aim. So I, I sort of sympathize with the aim. Um, and in some ways, I think there is research about how forms of suppression of mobility backfire. And in some ways, the whole crisis is, back, is a backfiring of the policies, which are the absence of visas to claim asylum plus carrier sanctions. So, so I think in some ways, we can look at legal routes other than resettlement, um, because we have to look at why it is that people have to make dangerous journeys when they travel to claim asylum. Um, and so, so I do think we can, I mean, whether it looks politically feasible or not, I think it's important to just constantly state that it's not normal or natural for refugees to have to get into rubber, rubber dinghies to make a journey which, if one do, does in a ferry, only costs you 15 euros. Um, you know, these are abnormal conditions created by our um, migration systems, and they didn't exist in previous refugee crises to the same extent. Um, so I, I, I can't really answer the question, how do you divert people into legal routes? But I can say that resettlement often isn't the best way to divert people into legal routes because it presupposes waiting. Um, so if we had very, very significant international commitments to resettlement and process of resettlement up and running, perhaps that would deter some people from making irregular journeys. But they would have to be serious, credible commitments of a scale that you would be able to impact on people's perceptions of their prospects, you know, saying, okay, it's very difficult in these countries uh, of first asylum, but we're willing to wait it out because maybe the war will end and we haven't been abandoned by the international community and the chance of resettlement is there. And so you would have to really rethink that whole incentive structure 
But what we have in the deal is such a piecemeal approach to resettlement that it's meaningless in terms of its impact on incentive structures. Um, so, so I think that question is important, but I don't want to be dystopian, but it's hard not to be pessimistic. And to respond to Goke's point, I'm very grateful for raising this issue of public opinion and how the framing of this question really has a, such a profound impact on public opinion. And to read an EU statement which interchanges words like migrant not in need of international protection and illegal migrant um, and just completely blurs the protection questions, um, I suppose is, and, and the whole notion of trading, this one for one idea and the complete fungibility of human life that it presupposes. Um, I mean, I think that's a, another worrying dimension. I'll be really brief on, on this question of uh, what can be salvaged, because I think Guy and Catherine have said a lot. Um, I mean, put it, put it bluntly, I, I don't think much can be salvaged, both on legal and ethical grounds and on practical grounds, that a lot of what's been proposed will not work, even against the standards and aims of the policymakers who have created it. I think possibly the one part of it that could be resurrected is the simple fact that the EU will have to work with Turkey. But what can't be salvaged is the way it proposes to work with Turkey in this deal. And what's deeply problematic is the almost exclusive strategic focus on Turkey for a European solution. So I think what needs to change in the way we conceive of Europe's Turkish strategy is at least twofold. Firstly, Europe has to have both an internal and an external dimension to its refugee policy. And my concern is that Europe has almost given up on renegotiating a sensible common European asylum system. Juncker spent almost all of his political capital on the September deal on relocation that at the time wasn't workable and for which there hasn't been political commitment. And as a result, the deal with Turkey has become Europe's plan A and there is no plan B. We have to, yes, work with Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, build capacity, build a willingness to protect refugees, but we also have to resurrect the common European asylum system and preserve asylum space in Europe. Those two parts can't be seen as substitutes for one another. They can't be seen as mutually exclusive. Europe has to get back on track to negotiating and rebuilding its common uh, European asylum system. The second thing we've got to think through is in how we work with Turkey. At the moment, this deal puts the cart before the horse. It assumes that through the deal, Turkey will develop a viable asylum system, become a safe third country. The money we will provide will achieve that. And that is absolutely to get it the wrong way around. It has to achieve those standards of human rights. It has to achieve that asylum system before we come anywhere near sending Syrian refugees or any other refugee back from Greece to Turkey. So absolutely, strengthen Turkey's asylum system through this deal. Absolutely, build economic opportunities through jobs and education for Syrian refugees who are in Turkey and haven't crossed to Europe, but completely reconceive the very basis of the EU-Turkey deal. Yeah, I'll be very brief. So, um, first thing I'd like to say is that I think those of us who have been critical about the EU response to the refugee emergency, and of course there is a lot, of, lot to be critical about, those of us who are critical of the response have not always been very good at appearing to offer constructive alternatives. I mean, it's all, there's been a lot of negativity about saying this is wrong, that's wrong, the deal is wrong. 
without always coming out with, with clear and constructive alternatives. And to the extent that con constructive alternatives have been offered, they've tended to become a little bit like slogans. Uh, you know, for example, the whole notion of safe and legal routes. I mean, if I go to my Twitter account, I can see 50 people an hour tweeting about the need to establish safe and legal routes. But we saw some honourable exceptions, and Catherine is one of them. Not that many people have actually looked at this notion in detail and said how it would work in practice, what forms it might take, who would it be prioritised in the establishment of safe and legal routes. Similarly, you know, the, it's become a kind of received wisdom within the humanitarian community that if you set up a, a resettlement programme, then irregular migration will diminish. I think I could at least intellectually make the argument in the, in the, in the short term, at least, a resettlement programme if it wasn't properly designed and it wasn't of the right uh, scale, might actually increase the level of irregular migration. So I think it is incumbent on us, those of us who have been critical of the EU response, to be a little bit more forthcoming in what we would actually propose in its place. In terms of whether, we're, whether the deal is worth rescuing, I mean, I think one of the real problems is that we don't really know what the, the final shape of that deal is going to be. And again, just during the course of this day, I've seen so many different objections raised by some fairly influential actors in the European scene. I can't imagine it's going to remain exactly as it was when it was announced um, eight days ago. I think, you know, if it was to say pretty much as it is, I think, like uh, Catherine, I would say it's not a deal that's worth rescuing. And I think uh, to come back to what you concluded on, Alex, I think my, my major concern would be, you know, the global implications of anything that might come out of this deal. Uh, you know, the September meeting in New York with Obama, the whole purpose of it is to expand protection that space available to refugees. My concern is if this kind of thinking goes on over the next few months, that that conference might actually be a, a venue for actually diminishing protection space for refugees. You know, states have often called for a revision of the 1951 convention, you know, saying that it's not fit for purpose in the, in the contemporary era. And those of us in the kind of refugee advocacy community has always said, well, we shouldn't renegotiate the convention because we'll probably end up with something worse, not something better. And I'm worried that that might be the outcome of the September meeting if the EU deal was to go through. Thank you, Jeff. Frank? Yeah, just briefly, I wonder whether the deal is actually meant to be a policy, whether it is legally and uh, practically implementable or whether it is what Christina Boswell would call a policy narrative, results sold to the European public to appease the European electorate that something's got to be done. I think we need to wait and see whether there is actually any substance to what's called the deal or whether it's just, just a bubble, as I've said, meant uh, for a certain point in time to appease the European uh, electorate, and that's it. I mean, it's already talked about. Various ideas have already been rejected. Political parties say no to visa liberalization, no to sort of uh, accession negotiations. Uh, Cyprus is objecting, so I can't really see that what's been dealt with on the level of some heads of governance and council and, and commission will uh, survive scrutiny on the national level by the various governments. Thank you all very much. Um, so I'll open it now to the floor for discussion. Okay, thank you all very much for your contributions. We've got about 10 minutes left, so um, it'd be great if we could uh, hear from everyone on the panel, but if you uh, want to pass over, of course, please do. 
Um, let's go in the same order, if that's okay. I'm starting to Putting you, working It's partly for the camera, so the camera can pan across. Oh, well, if it's for the camera. It's just a couple of points I'll deal with. The, on the litigation issue, what I anticipate is a multiplicity of cases being brought in a multiplicity of countries by anyone who might be threatened with removal, either to Greece initially or thereafter to Turkey. I mean, this is what has happened in the past, and that's what's going to happen in the future. And there are many sources of law upon which the, the, the individual refugee or asylum seeker threatened with removal can draw. They can draw on national law, which protects them against return to the risk of harm. They can draw on European Union law. They can draw on the European Convention on Human Rights. And necessarily, depending upon the jurisdiction in which you find yourself, it may be better to go one way or the other. Um, and one shouldn't underestimate either the power of the, of the European Court of Human Rights to, uh, to, to place a ban, a suspensive effect on any decision it takes to stop removals, for example. I think that's quite likely to happen. If we look at the records of the, this and this court and others, we'll see that most countries have at one time or another fallen foul of their duty or not fail, have failed to fulfill their duty to implement their obligations, EU uh, and international or other, at some time or another. Um, whether the agreement itself could be subject to legal challenge rather depends, I think it's unlikely, it would depend on, on exactly how it was formed and whether, for example, it came within the purview of, of, of the European Union or not, or whether it was something which was effectively concluded outside that. Uh, but it's not, the, it's not the treaty as such or the validity of the agreement as such that I think uh, is, is going to be the greatest obstacle to state's implementation. It's going to be the challenges which will rightly be, 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 be lodged against its implementation in practice. Um, on the, uh, you mentioned Gaziantep a moment ago. I happened to be there with the Council of Europe um, meeting in, in uh, June of last year in Gaziantep and Kielis. And I was certainly very impressed at one level by the, the, the camps which existed there for just a few uh, Syrian refugees, extraordinarily well organized. Um, obviously, things have been laid on for the visit. But nonetheless, when we walked through Kilis itself, it was quite clear that there were many Syrian refugees who were conducting businesses or walking the streets or otherwise involved. That, I think, maybe have just been a surface impression, because I've certainly heard that one of the problems in relation to the huge majority of Syrian refugees who, uh, who are living in Turkey is that we just don't don't know how well they're getting on. So far, it's been apparently okay, and intercommunal relations seem to be relatively stable. We don't have, I understand, enough information on that issue. Uh, finally, on the, the enhanced cooperation, I mean, the, the mechanism does exist. It's a, it's a sort of emergent uh, institution, if you like, within the, 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 the union itself, which allows a, a group of nine member states at the moment uh, to come together and agree within themselves on how to deal with a particular issue. Um, it may have opportunities for application in the context of refugee protection, asylum, and, and so forth. I'd like to think it, it, it has, and I'd like to think there are actually nine member states who are sufficiently like-minded to be able uh, themselves to introduce uh, what ultimately might be a model for the rest of the European Union. And if you think about it, Schengen began as a limited agreement between like-minded states. I would have thought a new regime of refugee protection and asylum uh, could likewise begin in a similar way. And finally, what do you do with recalcitrant straits? Well, I think you just carry on with the razor wire fence and put it around the whole lot. Oh, that's politically inappropriate, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, just to pick up two themes very quickly. Um, one on sort of legal form and process. Um, and I think as has been reiterated, this deal isn't really anything as yet. 
but some aspects of it are um, rooted in existing aspects of EU law, um, particularly the rules about safe third country, which are adopted by qualified majority vote with, um, with co-decision of the European Parliament. So if they were to be changed, that would be the process. Um, and some people claim that they don't need to be changed to effectuate returns to Turkey. And at that point, then I would say, well, that will definitely be litigated um, before, in likelihood, both the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, to which individuals can have direct access, even if they can't find an effective remedy in Greece, they can make emergency applications to Strasbourg. Um, and then, as Guy mentioned, there are also... Um, processes around enhanced cooperation, and there's an emergency legal base that was used to agree the relocation mechanism, but two of the uh, Visigoth countries have challenged the legality of that relocation mechanism. Um, and I think that relates to the second kind of theme that I wanted to pick up on, which is a, a rule of law problem within the European Union. And there, I think I disagree with, um, I, I'm not sure, Paul, who you were quoting when uh, a leader said, we, are, we have to listen to our people, because my understanding and strong impression from colleagues in countries like Hungary, and there's a wonderful talk in the series that's done by Professor Boldejarnage, um, outlining um, the way the crisis was constructed in Hungary, is that it's just incredibly unfortunate timing that refugee arrivals were politically constructed in a particular way by some demagogic politicians at the same time as a genuine sort of rule of law, I don't want to say crisis, but serious strains on the rule of law in those countries anyway, which are of concern to the European Union. And this has created a sort of a, a, a toxic issue in terms of open defiance of EU rules. So Hungary is still playing along with EU law on agricultural subsidies, on the internal market, you know, but it's just claiming, oh, we, we can't this, this, these obligations are not relevant in terms of refugees because these aren't refugees, they're in, invaders. So I think it's, it's partly then refugees have just run into a political crisis which is nothing to do with them. Um, and, and I think in some of the discourse there's been a tendency to sort of say, oh well, you know, Central and Eastern European countries, they don't have a history of refugee protection. I think all of that is to look for a deep-rooted cause in what is actually a very proximate uh, political issue about the political constituency of the leadership of some of those countries at the moment. Um, and I think uh, just one final then dimension to think about coalitions of the willing and so on. I mean, I think the bilateral may start to work a bit better too. Um, there's some very small signs, for example, that uh, there's some Spanish cities have agreed to relocate people directly from the Greek islands because the EU pan-European relocation isn't working. I mean, I think um, if we look at numbers of arrivals so far and they don't seem to be diminishing, I think we're going to have to look for much more creative humanitarian solutions that look towards cities of welcome, private actors, the role of humanitarian mm -hmm. actors uh, to just you know, basically rescue people and evacuate people from places like Idomini. And I think you know, that maybe is going to be the catalyst for political action. Um, looking, you know, into the coming months. Um, I've got just three quick responses. Um, firstly, the lady from Oxfam. I think there's a real strategic dilemma 
that UNHCR in particular has, but also conveners of other summits this year have, which is, as you ask, whether to reject resettlement commitments made under the one-for-one -one deal as valid resettlement pledges. I hope UNHCR is thinking about this very seriously because I think there are real risks to accepting those pledges. First of all, the risk is that it legitimates post hoc the deal done between the EU and Turkey. But secondly, it's simply not like for like to make a resettlement pledge under that deal as a one-for-one -one deal in relation to somebody who's been sent back as compared to resettlement that comes for humanitarian protection or durable solutions-based motive. Um, I think UNHCR rejecting those places in the 30th of March conference looks unlikely, but I very much hope governments in the demarches that they issue before that take this issue seriously and that, for example, the US government recognises the damage it would do to the Obama summit were these resettlement places to be a major part of that summit. In relation to your, your second question about um, does the deal create perverse incentives for people to try the journeys to um, elicit additional resettlement places, I think Patrick Kingsley of The Guardian has perhaps been most articulate and indeed facetious on this point, saying it not only creates a perverse incentive for refugees to cross the Aegean, but it creates a perverse incentive on the Turkish government to encourage the journeys across the Aegean. I don't quite buy the rationality assumption behind that. Um, this goes back to Calypso's question, what are the incentive structures? I don't buy that desperate vulnerable Syrian people are sitting with their calculators or following EU policy and deciding how rationally it shapes their calculus of cost-benefit analysis. I equally don't buy that the Turkish government um, is particularly doing that and likely to encourage more journeys. But I think it's an interesting observation given that the standards of the European Union are to discourage and disincentivize those journeys that logically and deductively we can envisage that it might have the opposite effect. It shows whether the sort of warped logic of the EU is coming from in approaching this. And very much as Frank said, that I think the audience is EU electorates rather than viable functional policy. Finally and briefly, the question from the gentleman in the corner um, about the example of Israel effectively trying to transfer responsibility for Eritreans and Sudanese to countries like Rwanda and Uganda. As, as Jeff, I think, articulated very well, there's a litany of examples of attempts by governments to outsource asylum processing or refugee protection, many of which have been extremely problematic on human rights grounds, on practical grounds. I think what you referred to, though, in relation to Israel, is the very particular position it's in um, politically as compared to its neighbours and the region it's in. Um, my worry globally is that as governments start to come up with creative or innovative refugee policies, these population transfers become part of the toolbox of thinking about the political geography of asylum. And for obvious reasons, it would be a very dangerous thing to globalise as a norm. Yes, Australia uses it. Yes, the EU has tried it and been thwarted. But I think for that to become a norm of how we collectively do asylum and refugee protection would have major risks, not least the one I mentioned of it being premised upon using coercion against refugees and vulnerable populations. Thank you. Any closing thoughts, Jeff? Yeah, i just come back quickly to a point that Frank made, actually, where he asked the question as to whether this is a policy narrative designed to you know, satisfy public opinion and give the appearance of action, or whether it's a real proposal that's on the table. Uh, 
let's take the second point. I mean, if it is a real proposal and it goes ahead in something like its current form, it doesn't mean to say it's going to work. It could quite easily fall apart. I mean, tonight we've talked about some of the legal and the ethical issues. We haven't talked at all about some of the operational problems involved in implementing this. So there is a, there is a risk that even if it does go ahead, there will be kind of quite serious problems in its implementation. I just wonder what that's going to do to the image of the EU at a time when public perceptions of the EU are not particularly positive in any case, if this deal is announced and an attempt is made to implement it and then it simply doesn't work, how is that uh, going to be received by the European public? So it strikes me the EU is playing quite high stakes on this one. Um, Frank, any closing thoughts? And some people at the back are struggling to hear. Yeah, I just want to sort of pick up uh, one of the arguments, questions uh, made, the coalition of the willing. Uh, coalition of whom for what purpose comes to my mind. We have seen uh, attempts by Merkel last year to muster a coalition of the willing that would provide a more humanitarian response. Uh, it fell apart with the change of government in uh, Poland with uh, Sweden dropping out uh, of this uh, uh, policy uh, approach. It uh, basically became uh, unpopular with the Paris bombing, as well as with the incidents in uh, Cologne. So the whole idea of the, of the coalition of the government lost some of its foundations, I would say. We have some other coalitions of the willing. We have the Austrian-led coalition of the willing to introduce fences, border <laughs> controls, closed borders. We have the coalition of the willing of the Visegrad countries, uh, objecting and undermining uh, resettlement and, uh, uh, and, and relocation. So we have a whole range of coalitions willing to do rather different uh, things uh, in Europe. That's great. Um, Calypso, there were a couple of questions um, directed at you. I don't know if you want to I'll respond just say to them. One sentence, on just to, to, to end on a positive note, uh, which is that the beauty of recalcitrant members and the beauty of politics, you can buy them off. And you can make linkage that sometimes are creative. And I would bet you that on the Cyprus uh, dynamic, there is a real good chance that the Cyprus threat of a veto <coughs> might induce Turkey to be much more lenient on the settlement on Cyprus than it would otherwise have been. So it could be a positive linkage. That's great. I just want to uh, end by thanking all the panellists and the respondents and all of you for your patience um, and for your involvement in the discussion. Um, I believe that Frank has an event on Friday and we thought maybe... If ah, you yes, to thanks. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, we have another sort of uh, extra event uh, this week, the Turkey Migration Studies Group uh, meets on Friday at uh, 1 o'clock at 64 Benbury Road. It's a joint event of COMPASS and CSOX to address issues to do uh, with Turkey refugee migration. We have a keynote speaker here who is in the audience, Aysalin uh, Yildiz and uh, Gökay Özerim, uh, who will be talking about measures in Turkey, things on the ground, recent uh, immigration law enforcement measures and uh, as well the EU-Turkey deal. So we basically continue in a workshop style discussing the matters that were at stake today. Everybody's welcome, just let me know and I'll Thank give you, you the details. Thank you.